0: Megan and I are so excited to share this behind-the-scenes peek into the making of our Women Who Travel power list. But there's so much more waiting for you in the full article. From film directors to war journalists to wildlife ecologists, these women are reshaping the travel landscape and leaving a lasting impact on the world. Keep listening to hear more about why Megan and myself chose to highlight these 15 fascinating women. And head over to cntraveler.com today to explore the complete list and be inspired by their incredible journeys. And for a limited time, our listeners can unlock everything Traveller has to offer for just $5. Simply use code POD5, that's P-O-D-5, at checkout to access exclusive travel insights, breathtaking destinations, and invaluable tips to fuel your adventurous spirit. All for just $5. And remember, every adventure starts with just one step.
1: Quote today at progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.
2: A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Hreis, host of This is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Hey!
3: Hey everyone, this is Women Who Travel, a podcast from Cade Traveler. My name is Meredith Carey, and as always, I am seated next to Laleh Erokoglu. Hello. And this week we have someone very exciting in the studio. I'm going to just read this spiel, like right off my piece of paper, because it is so mind-blowing. Georgia Dina is an aspiring 26-year-old pilot who's already been around the world once with her dad, co-piloting a single-engine turboprop plane the size of a small yacht. She was 23 at the time, which, like, is... I was doing nothing at 23. Um, Doing nothing now. (laughs) You and your dad just completed an epic 54-day route in the same plane all over the place, starting in Colorado Springs and ending up in Greece, and Jordan and Africa and Greenland and all of these other places that was not the order they flew in by the way and you filed dispatches to kind of traveler the whole route so Lolly and I have been keeping up with your journey but you just finished when um, I got back on
0: October 17th okay so yeah. like 2 weeks ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so how has it been adjusting to normal life on the ground
2: it's it was easier than i thought but i did Come back to New York and have to do a full move. And I broke up with my boyfriend and I don't have a job. Oh so God. it's been more than an adjustment.
3: <laughs> do you feel like your travel, like those 54 days, were like this mind opening? Because that's a lot of things to happen at once.
2: Yeah. It feels like you're in a different planet. I mean, you're very much so on Earth and we're very aware of that. We are fighting gravity the whole time. But, uh, it's like a meditation almost. You just kind of, flying is so rhythmic. You get into a uh, routine and getting out of the routine is the hardest part. But other than that, it's it's just, it's a lot of fun. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I'm curious because we talked to someone a couple of weeks ago who went on this like 10 month journey with her childhood best friend. And the thought of, like, I love my dad so much, but the thought of spending 54 days in a plane with him is like a very oh
0: overwhelming God. idea. My mom and dad actually book separate seats on a plane because my <laughs> mom can't sit next to him for that long. So, like, first, like, what was it like growing up
3: with a dad who I would assume flew while you were growing up? That yeah. assumption yes. could be yes. wrong. Yes. Yeah, you are um, correct. And what was it like spending all that time with him on this journey? So two parts.
2: To that yeah, um, it was really fun having a dad who flew. I'm one of three girls. I'm the youngest. And I was the only one who really caught the flying bug. So whenever we would fly, I would be in the front. I've always enjoyed that aspect of it. Like we would go on family vacations and I would remember the flight, not the destination. So I was always kind of a nerd about it. Uh, and we would do really cool things. He loved any excuse to get in an airplane. For a while, he had an aerobatic airplane when I was in college, and I went to college in my hometown, so... Wait, what does that mean to the untrained? So this plane specifically, it was a, uh, what you would train in to train for, like, a fighter jet. So it had a jet engine. It looks like a jet. It has the canopies. You feel like you're in Top Gun. You, like, put a helmet on. And so Saturday mornings, we would go out, and he would do his aerobatics, and we would go fly around, like, these canyons in Colorado, and... That was that was our routine and so i mean i definitely took advantage of his flying and then um as far as spending that time with him having done it when i was 23 the around the world that was almost 80 days you know you learn a lot about yourself and your dad <laughs> um but when we went around the world i had just gotten my very first part it's called your private pilot license and it's like your pilot's license light i call it because you can't fly in weather you can only fly certain air like very small airplanes So um, this time I had gotten my instrument rating, which is a much higher level, and I had got my complex rating so I could do, you know, high altitude, all these, you know, pressurized cabins, landing gear. So I was very much so involved in the actual flying versus just the navigation and the radio calls, which I was the first time. And it was definitely a different ordeal with the two of us, splitting those tasks. And there was trial and error because we had never done it before. And so when you're doing trial and error while you're crossing the Atlantic, it's – it's, it's like intense. a high-pressure situation. Yeah. <laughs> it isn't. It isn't at the same time because no one can see you, and no, you like no one knows what you're doing. So you're kind of like, I guess we're going the right direction. Like this is still east, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, there was tense moments. There was moments when you know we learned a lot about each other. But there's
0: a reason my mom's in the back. Like
2: <laughs> she, she couldn't do it. Uh, there's something about father-daughter that made it special.
0: Trial and error is not a term that I like to hear used in the context of flying plane. Um, what were some of those tense moments?
2: Um, it's mostly just who's doing what. It's not that anything's being, you know, it's not like, oh, look, let's try this button. That kind of trial and error. <laughs> it's more who's going to do what and when. And, uh, you know, there are times where we'd line up for takeoff and he'd look at me and I'd look at him. And it's like, so who's taking off this airplane right now? <laughs> um, which sounds <laughs> crazier than it actually is. So there's, there's those moments. And then... Um, when you're flying across the Atlantic, there's no radar, so like when you're over the land, pretty much someone always knows where you are, except for in Africa. So we learned, and so you're making position reports, and you have to figure out the you know your lat long, which seems very archaic in an airplane. When when you're in New York, you fly basically with an iPad, and you know they know exactly where you are. You know exactly where you are. When you're crossing the Atlantic, you're figuring it out. So um, there were some times when we would have to you know they would ask us where we were, and I would go to find out one way, and he would go to find out another way. And those moments, we'd look at each other, what are you doing? What are you doing? But we always figured it out. And it was never anything like we were falling out of the sky. So that's the good
3: news. <laughs> Key to yes. this scenario. Yes. Um, I'm just curious, so my understanding of what it takes to get a pilot's license, any level of pilot's license, mm-hmm. is so many hours and like just generally being able to take so much time to have the practice time to fly. So like, what was the process of even getting that pilot's license? Yeah. And when did you start and decide to start working on it?
2: Yeah, well, the big secret is it only takes forty hours of flying to get your first license. Oh my God, that's terrifying.
3: <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, this people... like the opposite of the answer <laughs> that I wanted to hear.
2: <laughs> <But> it's, like, <laughs> it's not like one of those people would ever be flying uh, your commercial airplane, so don't worry. But if your friends like, hey, I just got my license, you should be like, I'm going give you a few more hours. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But no, I mean, the FAA takes a very good does a very good job of making sure you're up to snuff. It takes people average seventy to eighty hours to get their first license. I took my first lesson with my older sister, actually. And I think I was 16, 17, and she hated it. She got motion sickness, was in the back, like, covering her eyes, like, did not like it. And I, of course, loved it. I'd have been doing it for so long. And then I actually didn't start taking my own lessons until I was 19. Started in college, and then I kind of had a falling out with my instructor. People think flight school is like Top Gun. It's not. It's just you and one normally dude. There are some lady teachers, but not many. Uh, so it's like you and one guy every day. Flying, and if you don't like them, you're stuck in, very, a, in a yeah. metal tube hurtling through the And you're like, <laughs> and, and you know, teaching techniques. Like, they, like this guy would just explain the same thing over and over again the same way. And I was like, no, clearly I don't understand this. Like, <laughs> have you seen my landings? They're very rough. <laughs> it's like, I'm like I'm getting whiplash. Um, and then once I graduated college, I was a guide in Alaska for a little bit. I was sea kayaking up there, and when I came back, I was unemployed and living in Denver. And my dad decided to do the Around the World, and my mom, he can fly that plane by himself. It's a single pilot plane, but my mom was like, maybe you should help him. <laughs> um, you know, it doesn't doesn't hurt to have a second person up there, so mm. I went back to flight school, and it took me about three weeks, four weeks to get up to snuff and get get through it, and then I didn't fly after that for three years, because it's not easy. It's, not, it's also not cheap to fly an airplane, and then I got my instrument rating, which is the intense flying, so it's... Like, you know, when you're flying in an airplane and you're like, I think we're descending. And then all of a sudden it's just like the runway's right there. You learn how to do that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Accurately. <laughs> okay.
2: Okay. Accurately speaking.
0: Yeah. Great. Do you remember the first time you went up in a plane with your dad? I do not, actually. That's amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I, was that, I was
2: that young. Um, I do remember one of our first flights, though. He had a small plane and uh, it was a four-seater in the back. So it's what's called club seating. So you're facing each other. And so two seats are backwards, two seats are forwards. And one of my sisters sat backwards and she got so motion sick. And so for the rest of our lives, I will always be the one who sits backwards in airplanes. And that's, that's kind of my first memory of flying is being like, you, you girls are babies and they're my older sisters. So. <laughs> I think great. that also comes with being just like, yeah, the youngest is like the one who gets the short end of the stick
3: and sits always. backwards. Yeah, so. right. On that. I'm curious that after that like 80 day journey and then taking that three year break, what was the impetus for this 54 day adventure
2: my dad retired <laughs> pretty much yeah that and uh he was waiting to hear back about you know this one thing that was going on in his life and he heard back that it was that this thing didn't go through and so he didn't have anything to do so off to Africa we went. You know, we go with a, a group of airplanes and they were already going and so we are kind of just in a holding pattern to use pilot lingo, <laughs> waiting to see if we would join them. So we, it was already set up and so it was just about whether or not we would join
0: them. And it would be, either have been this year or next year. So it was this year. And so when you talk about there was like this group of other planes, were you like encountering other people on this journey that were like doing a similar sort of thing? Is there like a sort of network of... Or- <laughs> pilots that fly around the world
2: there is there's that's it, exactly it they're called uh, earth or earth rounders I should know the answer to this uh, world rounders um so the opposite earth of a flatter yeah right? <laughs> exactly yeah. you're very aware of it um and they yeah there's this one company that sets it up every year and they've had to cancel for weather and political strife that they you know there's getting through the middle east is like threading a needle for sure as far as where you can land and where you can't. So they they set it all up. I mean, they have all the connections. There's a lot more to just flying your airplane. You have to land it, you have to park it, you have to fuel it. And those three things are not easy permits to get. It's not easy to get someone to release. You have to release your fuel. It's called a fuel release. Um, and there have been instances where fuel releases came through for... Because we were with a group of planes, and fuel releases came through for all of them except for one. And the fuel truck's just sitting there, and it's like, well, we can't give you anything. <laughs> so definitely need help. Cause there's no way you could do it without the network.
3: I feel like in the, in the dispatches that we were reading, there was always like a plan a, and then somebody always had a plan B. Like if you couldn't end up landing in this one airport, there was another one or maybe another one. Like who was your
2: support? Who was the person like on their computer? Like, okay, well this is what we're <laughs> going
3: to do. just in case.
2: Yeah. It's this, it's a company called air journey and that's what they do. It's a family owned company. So we were with the owner and his daughter and, uh, He's a pilot, she's not, and they just I mean, those two could run the world, I'm pretty sure. Um, they have like a plan A, B, C, D all the way through. Um, like we at one point we weren't sure if we were gonna be able to go up through Sawatome and Ghana and they were like, All right, well, we can go back to Egypt, we can do this, we can do that and we were like, How are you thinking of all of this? They're like <laughs> yeah. we're gonna go to Malta and then we're gonna go all the way to Morocco and we we're like, Yeah, okay, sounds good. Um, so they I mean, they're the ones who who are really the brain power behind it because they, you can't just fire up an airplane and fly it in a place like Africa. You can in the States, but um, so you need someone who knows people at the airport because when you land, like, it's not like you have someone being like, all right, and this is where customs is. Like, customs comes to your airplane and, like, it's it's just a totally different experience and you definitely need someone with an inside track. Well, I feel
3: like when you're talking about these borders, like, there was one border that you mentioned specifically that was, like, four countries coming together in the Red Sea and, like, finding the exact place to, like fly the airplane so that you didn't cross any borders that you can't see because uh, no one has like a white line on the ground <laughs> to be like, don't fly over this section. How did that even happen?
2: Yeah. So um, what you're talking about is at the top of the Red Sea, it's Israel, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, and Egypt, Egypt in the form of the Sinai Peninsula, which you are recommended by the American government to not fly an American airplane below 26,000 feet. So, I mean, that doesn't, that's not that bad. That's where we fly. We fly above that. But that ends about five miles from where we we're supposed to land. So all of a sudden you're at 26,000 feet and you have, you have to drop. And so navigating that's just pretty tough. And in, the way you do that is, um, and that's instrument flying. So you have GPS that's helping you and you have patterns, you're talking to tower, you're talking to the other airplanes. Um, and there's these paths in the sky. I mean, you'd be surprised. I can show you some pictures. It looks very complicated and it's not. And you can, I have our flight path and we just flew a giant holding pattern falling out of the sky. In actuality, we were going down as fast as we could trying not, you know, we knew where the other airplanes were. They knew where we were and we were tailgating. It was a traffic jam up there. It was it was really wild. Um, I'm not going to lie. You're sitting there and you're looking at Israel and it, we cannot go into Israeli airspace. It's not an OK place to fly an airplane without a permit. So you're like, you're landing a mile from their border and you're like, I guess we're going to go around it. It's like it's, it is intimidating. It is worrying. So which country did you land in? Jordan. Yeah. And Saudi Arabian airspace, they don't take lightly to uh, unknown aircrafts in their airspace. And then, yeah, so it's, it was definitely you, I mean, there, nothing went wrong and everything was fine, but it was definitely one of those moments where you got on the ground and you're like, okay, I have a lot of adrenaline going through
0: my body right now. And we did it. You're like, was that a really dumb thing we just decided to do? Yeah.
2: You kind of feel like that sometimes. And you'd be surprised actually most borders have a road running down it. Like there's a, there's oh, a So room. you could
3: actually see the little white line.
2: line. <laughs> when you get closer, then you're like, okay, there it is. We're good. Yeah, you
0: might be a bit <laughs> too close. Yeah, <by> <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: Absolutely. What
0: was Jordan like?
2: Jordan's beautiful. We were in, uh, we went and saw Petra and we went, actually, we ended up going into Israel for the day because we were there for two days. Um, and that's just, this is one of those weird things that happens when you fly your own airplane in as crew. Uh, we tried to cross the border into Israel and it took us, I think, three hours to cross because there was no proof that we ever entered jordan because we entered as crew and without a general declaration which is a list of everyone on the planet so i mean we sat at the israeli border with jordan for 3 hours trying to like you know go see a dolphin in israel was, <laughs> i don't know but um jordan was amazing yeah i'm curious how much time you spent cuz cuz the general route as far as
3: i and this is very general but it was like you guys left colorado went to canada greenland and then iceland and then went like zip, zip, zip over Europe, and then went into Jordan and then down into Africa. How much time did you actually get to spend once you landed in all of these tens of places that you visited to actually explore them?
2: Yeah, and I think this this is the, the, you know, the drawback of doing this as fast as, as we did it. Um, the most we spent in one place was Tanzania. We were there for five days, which was really fun. But normally it was one or two. That was the standard. So a place like Djibouti, you spend one because there's not... A whole lot to see there. Um, And then a place like Mozambique, you spend two because two days at the beach. You know, Cape Town, you spend two. So it it depended. But the cool part about it is is you get to see these places in rapid succession. You can see how quickly the world changes. Like around the world, people are like, oh, did the world feel really small after you flew around it? You're like,
0: no, there's so many people (laughs) and there's so
2: many different cultures. Like, it's a huge place. How are we ever supposed to get along? So it's a two-sided coin. But it's the exploration was you mean people were like oh so did you check a bunch of
0: stuff off your list and you're like no I need to go back to every place I went to. Yeah, what were some of the places where you got to the end of the two days and both of you were just desperate to stay longer and it felt kind of heartbreaking to get back on your plane.
2: Yeah, um, Tanzania you could have left me there that place is amazing it's it's so beautiful. Cape Town you you just want to keep exploring that place there's so much there and. You know, Ghana was really cool, Morocco, uh, and then Europe, you're kind of like, all right, I'll be back. Like, this is an easy one to get to. Jordan, I definitely want to go back. I mean, I'm just going to start listing every country we went to, so I'll just <laughs> I mean, that's here. like yeah. fine by me. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I'm curious to go back to what you were saying earlier about like being able to see the world change. How do you feel your perspective on what places are like changes by being able to see them from above?
2: You know, you get a pretty good view of the uh, civil engineering, which sounds really nerdy, <laughs> but like, I mean, I'm a pilot, I'm a nerd. Um, so you can see how a city's laid out. And you can see that when you fly in a commercial airplane, but when you see it through a cockpit, you get a 260 view or 270 view, excuse me, of. Um, what it what it's like and so you see how it's all put together and you can see, you know, when you fly into South Africa into Cape Town, you know, you're flying over the shanties and you see the big houses on the hill and you and you can see how it's, you know, built around Table Mountain and that's really cool. And then some places you can see the pollution, some places you can see the agriculture and um but the biggest thing about flying your when you're flying yourself is the people on the ground. And that tells you this, so much about a place you've come to. You know, is it absolute Chaos. Do they know what's going on? And a lot of places, they're no, they don't. You land and they're like, okay, I guess you're gonna come sit here and you're gonna wait here. And our fuel truck is I don't know where. And um, (laughs) (laughs) you. And then there's some places like when you landed in South Africa, we got onto uh, ground control. We landed at the big uh, international airport. They're like, welcome to Cape Town. Taxi here. This is what you're gonna do. And like, there's a full plan. You're like, okay, we're back in like a very organized area. And like in Namibia, it was just. Just a random strip, and there was like one guy there who like flagged us in and was like, The fuel truck will be here in a little bit. And like, (laughs) like, I'm your customs officer. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we had to wait. We had to go through security three times in Namibia, leaving because we were waiting for the customs officer, and they would be like, Well, they're outside. So we'd go outside, and they'd be like, Well, they're inside. Back through security. We're the only people in the airport, and we're in pilots' uniforms. Everyone, and they're like, "Can you go back through security?" You're like, "Yeah, I'll put my iPad there again." Like, what like are you I don't, doing? I don't have anything. It's, like, it's like, like the, the same guy, guy. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like the same guy is like, "All right, come through," and you're like, "I'm gonna beep because I'm wearing this necklace and I'm not taking it off." And then he they wand you down again. You're like, oh, my "God," so there's there's definitely some stuff where you're just like, you just shake your head at the bureaucracy of it all, but.
3: I'm curious what the difference is to you are like going through security as a passenger and as a pilot. Like, what is the difference? Because I always see like the crew line and you're always like, oh, they get to go through faster than everyone else. (laughs) Um, But what I mean, like even if you're just like as as you travel now, like as a commercial passenger versus as a private pilot, like what is that difference?
2: Um, It's super different everywhere you go. Some places like Greenland, the guy met us at the plane. He like brings in a stamp. He's like, all right, stamps each passport. One passport he stamped and was like, that's not good enough, flips the page and stamps it again. Like, This is really, (laughs) really formal. Um, And then, you know, when we were in South Africa, you have to go in and go through the same customs area, but because there's no airplanes, like no commercial airplanes had landed recently, it was just us and like the huge customs hall. Some places you stood in line with the rest of them. Like, you were treated as diplomats more than we were treated as crew, because crew just walks right through, mm-hmm. and, like, we weren't allowed to do that. So people were like, looking at us because we're standing there. It's a group of 18 people in pilot's uniforms. We don't look very official. Everyone's wearing, like, different colored pants, different shoes. Like, one lady was wearing cropped pants. Like, we looked <laughs> like real drag tag, But we, uh, we we definitely got some advantages and some very big disadvantages.
0: You mentioned... When you're like flying over like these sort of huge swathes of the planet and seeing how things like change from above, Mm -hmm. and you mentioned pollution being one of those Mm -hmm. things, was that something that really struck you? Some places, yeah. And some places uh, you could really see
2: the emphasis on agriculture and the emphasis on creating structure. So uh, it was pretty stark when, because over the west side, we ended up flying over the water most of the time. Um, and over the east side, we flew over the land. And when you're flying over, you know, up where Egypt and Sudan and Somalia are, it's, it's desolate. It's there's not any vegetation. It's very dry. Um, and then you start to get into Ethiopia and the high mountains, and you can see that some areas are hyper developed, and you can see where the deforestation and the erosion has started to happen. You can see where the mud where that's muddier and where the water's murkier. Um, and so that's a big part of it all. Mostly, what you can tell is the development. And not necessarily the actual pollution of the area, but the development and the uh, effects of that and how that either is well done or poorly done and how that's affecting the environment around it.
3: Flying in northern Africa, you crossed the Sahara, right? Yeah. What was flying across the Sahara like? Because I feel like kind of like flying over the ocean, it would just be like a little bit of a... Lulling, we're by ourselves, kind of feeling.
2: Yeah, it was. To, it's totally crazy. I mean, it's we that flight in and of itself was absolutely wild. There was some prohibited airspace that we got totally messed up with, and they were rerouting us. We didn't have enough fuel. It was a very intense flight, um, and we we had been sectioned off because some of the other some most of the other airplanes were jets, and they had more range than us. We just had a little turbine prop, so we had to refuel, and we you know made a decision in the air to land in Burkina Faso. Like it was a totally wild flight, and then all, we hit. Mali, and they were like, by the way, you can't, or Mauritania, they're like, you can't fly into Morocco. You don't have the right permits. What do you want to do? We were like, "Uh, keep flying. We'll figure it out. (laughs) Um, So we were texting the ground crew in uh, Florida, actually, and they were like, don't worry, we're going to figure it out. And so you're up there, and the guy is talking to you, and then he's talking to someone else, and you can't, he's talking to someone else that's so far away, you can't even hear them responding. And we realized that there's one controller for all of Mauritania, which is, um, if you don't know what it is, Google it, but it's a big, uh, it's basically the Sahara. And you're flying over there with one guy. He's telling you you have nowhere to go, and you're like, "We don't have enough fuel to turn around." And you look around, and you're like, "And it is just desert. There's nothing." Um, so it does. It does feel like the ocean. You mean you, if you had to make an emergency landing out there, which would just be a crash landing, um, controlled crash landing you would be isolated. I mean, it would be definitely be a little warmer than the ocean. Um, <laughs> you know, when we fly over the North Atlantic, we have to put out what are called survival suits, which if you've ever watched The Deadliest Catch, it's those big red Gumby suits that they get into when they start going down. We have them, like, laying out in case you have to hop in one.
0: It's not a... It's like a terrifying, like, just <gasps> a good reminder news if, of what could happen sitting uh, next to you.
2: Yeah, but the good news is if you're ever in a commercial airplane, you have more than one engine, so you're you're going <laughs> to make it. to go. good No yeah. Noted. yeah.
0: You know, I feel like this sort of goes for life in general, but when you're in a particularly sort of difficult moment or a scary moment, sometimes you kind of learn something new about yourself Mm -hmm. um, and the way that you, you know, respond to these sorts of situations. Did you learn new things about yourself on this trip and also like about your dad? Yeah, um, about myself,
2: I mean, you just, you learn to stand up for yourself, which sounds really silly that you, you know, of course you're flying on an airplane, but your controller tells you you have to reroute, you know, 400 miles west and you have to be like, no, we're not. I did learn a lot of standing up for yourself to air traffic controllers flying in New York doing my training. Um, they're not exactly, they're very serious people here. I mean, they have one of the busiest air in the world, you get it, but they're like, you know, you're like a learning pilot and they're like, get out of here. They would actually kick you off. They'd be like, you're done. You're out. And you'd be like, okay. We're going to go home. Um, so I did learn that through the training there. And then um, flying with my dad, did I learn anything about him? I learned a whole heck of a lot about him, and he did about me too. Um, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a different relationship. You know, all of a sudden I'm telling him, you know, can you check the cabin pressure? Are you checking this? Can you dial this into the ADF? Check this radial? Check this, you know, make sure our nav's on the right thing, VOR. And, you know, once I was in pilot and command, it was, I, the tables would turned, And you're not very often in a place where you're, telling you're not telling him what to do, but making sure that he's doing his checklist and I'm doing mine. And that, that was really a learning experience for both of us. Cause I mean, he has 7,000 hours. He's been, he flew back when flying was actually difficult and not like a video game. So he's, you know, he's definitely in control. But when I, when I was, you know, taking the wheel, it was, it was a learning experience for both of us. Was there one stretch where you were pilot in command or was it multiple times throughout the trip? It was multiple times throughout the trip. And, um, once we made this switch, which was Zambia to Botswana was what it was exactly, and then there were some times when we were flying that, like when we were flying into Gibraltar, the winds can be really crazy in there, and it's it's a really wild landing. He's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna take lefty on this, one. I was like, sounds good, Dad. Like I'm on board. <laughs> how does that division of labor work yeah. within the cabin? It's you know it's a good question. Cockpit? We had to cabin? We had cockpit. Cockpit. We, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and we, we had to learn that. You know, I think in, in an airline situation or a two-pilot, when it's genuinely a two-pilot airplane, it's much more rigid. But we were, you know, he's flown by himself for the past probably 4,000 hours. So to get him used to, and I had been flying a different airplane for my 130 hours I have. Um, figuring that out is actually a big part of it. But it ended up being the person who wasn't flying was doing the radio calls and the GPS and the person who was flying was flying. Flying. <laughs> Yeah, which the GPS and the nav is part of it. And then making sure the autopilot is doing the correct thing. And you're, you know, you're testing things, loading things. Like, it's it's pretty involved doing the flying part. But my, my sister who sat in the back, she was with us the whole time. Um, she was like, you guys are just like reading up there. You're like, sometimes. <laughs> but we're, we're monitoring. Don't worry. It's <laughs> probably the best but most terrifying flight
3: I've ever been on. Was on like a small eight person plane flying from Puerto Rico to the British Virgin Islands. It's like a little um, zippy plane. And they like put a passenger in the co pilot seat because they need to fill all the seats. And so they're just like, please don't touch anything. (laughs) Um, And you're like, oh, okay. Um, And in the middle of the flight, this guy like takes his hands off the wheel and then starts doing paperwork. And I was like, (laughs) (laughs) absolutely. And I'm like a pretty, like, I'm an incredibly calm flyer. I have made that trip now. Like, more times than I can count, and for the most part, I just fall asleep in the front, um, which is probably not great either. But uh, it's always something that I forget, that, like, the plane can, in certain situations, just absolutely fly itself.
2: Yes, absolutely. It Yeah, you just kind of – you're telling it what to do, and it's it's doing it. And, I mean, there are – it's not – like it's only flying itself. Like you're putting the inputs actually, in. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> um, people will, I was talking to someone and I said something about bringing the power in and out and they were like, well, doesn't autopilot do that? And I was like, not always. <laughs> and act, not on our plane, not ever. So um, you still are, you're still giving it the inputs and you're telling it which, cause there's multiple types of navigation you can do when you're flying. There's radio navigation, there's GPS navigation, and you're making sure that it's following the correct one. And you know, it's, 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 but it is pretty mellow, like it like once you're actually up in the air, you're when it's stable it's 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 easy
0: it, hopefully I <laughs> <laughs> mean, it's a good flight. What was the longest length of time you flew nonstop nonstop. We can do about
2: four and a half hours. We can do more, but when the alternate situation like in the states like if you have to fly to an alternate you're just like you just get up there and you're like all right denver center we're, we're going somewhere else like what do you got for us and they'll they'll help you if you have to do that in you know namibia they're like oh we don't know where do you want to go you're like i have no idea so we took it a little bit more seriously than we'd have to here um but the so it was about four and a half hours five hours um and then the longest day we did 12 uh, over 12 hours of flying one day we flew from Reykjavik to uh, winnipeg against the wind the whole time. And it I just it was the longest day ever. It was a 16-hour day, 12 of 12 hours were flying. I was in the left seat the whole time. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> Shout
3: out. <laughs> you know, you mentioned this earlier when you were saying that your instructor was a guy and that there aren't a lot of flight school teachers, let alone female pilots growing up in a, you know, all like other than your dad, like a, <laughs> a lot of women. How has your interaction with other female pilots been? Do you
2: feel like you run into any a lot?
3: It's like a really vague Yeah, no, no, it
2: is. The women in aviation question is a good one. Um, there there are not a lot of lady aviators, aviatrix as they're called. And when we landed in Greenland, it's a super small airport, and we ran into the people who run the sightseeing tours. That's what it is. And um, they had one gal who was a pilot and one... The woman who ran it was the, the guy who owned it, and it was his daughter who ran it, and you could tell by the relationship she was definitely in charge. Um, and so we went up with the female pilot, and she was super young. Um, she was 24, and she this was her, she was Danish, and this was, she was had been flying for two years. This was her summer job, and she was going up there and getting building her time, building her hours, and that was definitely rare. And I really liked that she had little diamond earrings in, and she had her Celine glasses on. And so I always love when people who do these, you know, seemingly masculine tasks are still. She's still very feminine, and I, I was like, "Yes, girl, you do you. Don't let people tell you I have to be. I mean, you're wearing pants and like you know cargo shorts and whatever. It's not an attractive thing, but I liked that she she still kept herself in in her personality. And then. On the trip, um, there was one of, one of the other couples, the wife was a, was a licensed pilot and she did all the radios, but um, her husband did all the flying for sure. And then that, that was it for, for lady pilots on our trip. And then one of the couples, the wife hadn't done much flying, but she just started her private pilot license now because she's like, oh, ladies can fly. And I was like, yes, girl, <laughs> get in there. Um, but no, there are, not, there are not many of them. Um, A lot more female controllers, and I do notice that when you're flying around in uh, Africa and Middle East, there's a lot more women pilots on the radios than you ever hear in the States, which I think is really interesting um, that these foreign airlines are doing a better job. Granted, everywhere besides the States, it's a lot easier to get in those commercial pilots' jobs. I mean, in the States, it takes years, and you go into severe debt, and it's not not an easy thing. It's a lot of money and a lot of time, for sure. Yeah, so because it's a little easier in foreign countries, more women are getting involved in it but it's,
0: it's definitely a man's world up there. Did you find, sort of when you'd be on the ground and you'd meet new people, was there an assumption that your dad was the sole pilot and that you were just along for the ride? It's, it's interesting that you bring that up. So we, when
2: we wear pilots' uniforms, the epaulets you wear, so that's the, the stripes you have on your shoulders, It became such a point of contention for me that by the end of the... like one, I think it was in Mozambique, my dad jokingly switched his four bars for three and I put on four, and then we just never switched back. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I'd be like like marching around the plane with my four bars and people... You could tell because, I mean, like a fuel guy doesn't know who to go to and so they're looking at the bars. And yeah, they definitely would look at him and he... Hats off to him. He definitely would make a point of being like, I don't know, ask her. She's the one in charge. Um, So he made a point of... Pushing that, but yes, absolutely. People were more drawn to him to ask questions and figure out what was going on with the plane. Um, even me sometimes, like, Dad, I don't know. Like that, I don't know.
0: <laughs> but that's
2: you making that decision. Yeah, true. This is true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Using my resources,
0: that's what it yeah. is. And knowing exactly how many hours he's flown. Yeah. yeah. One, you know, maybe sort of a note to end on I, you know, we sort of fielded the topic of um, getting a pilot's license and becoming a female pilot in our Women Who Travel Facebook group, and there was you know a lot of enthusiasm and questions about, well, like how do you actually do it? What's your advice to people of all ages who think it's like a totally crazy idea, but actually wanna make it happen? At Google flight schools in whatever city you're in and call
2: one. It is that simple. For women in aviation, there's uh, some scholarships out there. I mean, they're not gonna pay for the whole thing, but $1,000 can go a long way when you're uh, learning to fly. Most flight schools offer an introductory flight that's either severely discounted or free. And um, like in New York, I know sometimes they'll take you and do the skyline tour. Like you see them going around um, the end of the island and around the Statue of Liberty. And so that can be pretty cool. Just go out there and try it. It's not, when someone explains it to you, I'm not going to sit here and laboriously go through it. But if you go into a flight school, someone explains it to you and be like, why doesn't everyone come get their pilot's license? It's so easy. Um, you know, I remember getting my permit. I think I had to have 50 hours in a car. And it's like, I got my pilot's license in forty. This is crazy. Um, so just do it. It's a lot. Just Google it. Go, walk through the door. It'll be okay.
3: Amazing. Well, where can people follow your next journeys <laughs> on the internet?
2: Maybe with Conan Nest. I don't know. No, I don't. I, you know, I don't. I'm not a big social media gal. Um, never have been. But you can follow me on Instagram, Georgia Estine. Uh,
3: me. And you can also read all of George's dispatches on CNTraveler.com. Lale, where can people find you? At Lale Hannah on Instagram, and I am as usual at Oh Hey There Mayor. We have another exciting announcement, which is that we are having another meetup. They're coming back to back to back, yeah, guys. Just <laughs> quick firing, <laughs> <laughs> um, December eighth, we're going to be in Miami from four to six at an undisclosed location, so definitely join the Facebook group and get a ticket if you want to find that information out. It's over at Art Basel, so if you're already gonna be there, we would love to see you. Megan, Facebook group moderator extraordinaire, will be there uh, with everyone. Um, and if you want to also read more about why there aren't more female pilots, our lovely coworker Catherine LeGrave wrote a story this year for the Women Who Travel Package that is on cntraveler.com. Subscribe. We're on Spotify and iTunes and all the things, and we'll talk to you next week.
1: Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker and host of The New Yorker Fiction Podcast. On the podcast, I ask a great contemporary writer to select a favorite story from the magazine's almost 100-year archive to read and discuss. Together, we delve into the story, exploring its themes, its style, and what makes fiction work. You can listen to authors like Otessa Moshfegh talk about why we write. Story, or attaching a story or creating a story, is this inclination that we all have to stop spinning. And you can hear writers like George Saunders discuss the nature of storytelling. On the first read, you accept these things as descriptions, and they make you see the scene. But every line is a chance to inflect the reader's mind. You'll discover new favorite authors and read old favorites in new ways. Episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast are released on the first of every month. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts.